0: During today's episode, I'm going to be telling you about a new podcast. I think you should check out. It's called Uneffing the Republic, but they don't say effing because that is not what these times call for. So hear me out mid-show when I tell you all about it. And now. Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the potential of the end of American involvement in the war in Afghanistan, as well as some of our recent actions related to Yemen and Syria, as well as our relationship with Saudi Arabia. Clips today are from Breaking the Sound Barrier by Amy Goodman, Worldly, Deconstructed, Democracy Now, The Empire Has No Clothes, Citations Needed. Intercepted with Jeremy Scahill and a TED Talk from Samantha Nutt.
1: President Biden speaking from the Treaty Room, the same room in the White House where President George W. Bush announced the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan in October 2001. In the two decades since, over 100,000 Afghan civilians have been killed, along with 45,000 members of the Afghan army and police and at least 3,500 U.S. and coalition troops. Zahir Wahab knows well the impact of the invasion and occupation on his home country of Afghanistan. Wahab, a professor of education for decades, splits his time between the U.S. and Afghanistan. Since the 2001 invasion, he's been helping rebuild Afghanistan's shattered education system.
2: This invasion and occupation and the bloodshed
0: have destroyed the country, its economy, its institutions, its infrastructure, its education, its uh, way of life, relationships among the different ethnic groups. This occupation has been nothing short of a catastrophe.
1: Professor Rahab was speaking on the Democracy Now! NewsHour.
0: The United States and its allies
2: should never have attacked and occupied Afghanistan. It was wrong, it was illegal, and I think it was immoral. The war may end for the United States... But the war will intensify for Afghanistan
0: unless something needs must be done. And that is that we need to
1: constitute a U.N. peacekeeping force uh, immediately. There are no plans yet for U.N. peacekeepers. And a central demand of the Taliban and the ongoing peace negotiations is a complete withdrawal of foreign forces by May 1st, the date set by President Trump. Biden's delayed troop withdrawal may start then, but will it be as complete as promised?
3: This does not include the thousands of men and women who are part of U.S. special operation and NATO special operation teams, CIA teams, as well as the literally dozens of squadrons of attack aircraft and bombers, whether they be manned or droned, that are in the area.
1: That's Matthew Ho speaking on the Democracy Now! NewsHour. He's a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy. He was a Marine in the occupation of Iraq, followed by a State Department position in Afghanistan. He resigned in 2009 in protest of President Obama's escalation of the war.
3: The potential for the United States to remain involved militarily is quite high, even if all thirty five hundred acknowledged U.S. troops are withdrawn, as well as the NATO troops. The devastation on the Afghan people is hard to imagine. That two and a half million refugees are what's registered right now. But there's been there have been millions and millions of refugees for the last 40 years. For most of these last 40 years, the Afghans have been the largest refugee population. In the world, with the exception of a period of time when the Syrians were, as the Syrians go back, as that war has wound down, the Afghans, I believe, are once again the largest refugee population in the world. It's something like 70 percent of Afghans subsist on a dollar a day. There is no industry in Afghanistan to speak of.
1: The most recent estimate of the financial cost to the United States of the war in Afghanistan over the past 20 years from Brown University's cost-of-war project is $2.3 trillion, which could have built a lot of infrastructure in both Afghanistan and in the United States. Instead, the U.S. bought weapons, built soon-to-be-abandoned bases, and endlessly cycled troops through repeated deployments. Care for injured veterans and dead on the money borrowed to wage war will continue to cost U.S. taxpayers for decades to come. This doesn't count the billions spent arming the Afghan Mujahideen to fight the invading Soviet army during the 1980s, arms and training turned against the United States and its allies decades later. On September 14, 2001, days after the al-Qaeda attacks on the U.S., California Congresswoman Barbara Lee spoke on the House floor opposing military action against Afghanistan. Now,
4: I have agonized over this vote, but I came to grips with it today. And I came to grips with opposing this resolution during the very painful, yet very beautiful memorial service. As a member of the clergy so eloquently said. As we act, let us not become the evil that we deplore.
1: Congressmember Lee gave that speech just before casting the lone vote against the Authorization for Use of Military Force, or AUMF, which remains in effect to this day. This week, Lee applauded Biden's announced troop withdrawal, adding, "...this is the result of decades of hard work by activists, advocates and members of Congress committed to ending our forever wars. We must utilize this momentum to rein in executive war powers and put that power back in the hands of Congress and the people," she said. Lee is also leading a group of 50 House members who sent a letter to President Biden urging him to slash the Pentagon budget. She said in a statement, As we face a global pandemic and unprecedented economic crisis, the needs of American families far outweigh the need to continue feeding our bloated military defense budget. California Congressmember Ro Khanna, a co-signer of the letter, spoke on the Democracy Now! NewsHour.
5: If you're ending the forever war in Afghanistan, as the president pointed out, that should save about uh, $50 billion a year, then why are we increasing at the same time the defense budget? We need to look at where the numbers are being allocated and have a strategic reduction and allocate that instead in the threats that the United States faces, potential pandemics, climate change, cybersecurity.
1: Ending the war in Afghanistan should be a beginning, accompanied immediately by reparations to the Afghan people. President Biden should also end U.S. military interventions elsewhere, starting with Iraq, and cut the military budget. After decades of war, let's give peace a chance.
6: I mean, that obviously, this is the story of how the United States got into Afghanistan in the first place. The idea was that Afghanistan was the place where Osama bin Laden was hiding out and planned the 9-11 attacks, and the purpose of the invasion was to root out the Al-Qaeda presence and and their safe haven, so no more future attacks could be planned in the United States. Twenty years later, that's not really the issue anymore. The question now is the extent to which the Taliban, which is still, to be clear— An Islamist fundamentalist group, but one that doesn't seem to have designs on multinational terrorism targeting the United States, the degree to which that group takes over parts of Afghanistan that US and allied government forces have denied them for a long period of time. Now, Alex, the rationale for the US staying is that it needs to indefinitely prevent the Taliban from taking over the country until there's some kind of negotiated settlement between the government of Afghanistan and the Taliban. So what are the chances that the U.S. decides it goes back to that kind of thinking as opposed to really firmly following through on the 9-11 withdrawal date?
7: I think it's really low. This administration could not have been clearer that this withdrawal is going to happen despite the conditions. I think it's important to take a quick step back here. So the U.S. is in Afghanistan, for which you alluded to, for two general missions as of now. The first is to train Afghan forces to defend themselves against Taliban advances. In fact, the U.S. has not really been fighting in the war, quote unquote, for a while. We've just mostly assisting and training Afghan forces. and That's roughly, as of now, 3,500 troops, maybe a little bit less. The other is a counterterrorism mission against Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and other groups, roughly 20 terrorist groups, ruffling around in Afghanistan. And the thinking up Till now, quite literally now, was that we needed to remain in Afghanistan, even with a small troop presence, to bolster Afghan forces against any Taliban advances and our potential takeover of the capital, Kabul and other regions, and to continue fighting terrorist groups and effectively killing them with drones or or night raids with uh, special operations forces and all that. In February 2020, the Trump administration made a deal with the Taliban, which basically said by May 1st of 2021... All U.S. troops had to leave, all NATO troops had to leave, and the Taliban, in effect, had to keep a lid on al-Qaeda activities so they wouldn't be using Afghanistan as a base to plan attacks against the United States. That deal, it should be said, set conditions. Even though it was the U.S. saying we were going to get out by May 1st, there were tons of caveats in that deal. In effect, it was like, look... If Al-Qaeda is planning stuff, if we see the Taliban still very connected to them, if the Taliban attacks American troops and NATO troops during this time, if they escalate violence, then we can delay or this deal is somewhat abrogated. It should be said, there are still Taliban-Al-Qaeda ties. How close, we're not really sure. There were still attacks on Afghan civilians and Afghan troops. So violence didn't really de-escalate. However, there weren't attacks on Americans and allies. So for many experts, like the conditions weren't met. The deal has been broken. And yet the Biden administration has gone further than the Trump administration, in a sense. They said, we're out. We're not leaving by May 1st. We're going to start our withdrawal in no later than May 1st. And we're going to leave by September 11th. But we're going to leave no matter what. No conditions whatsoever. And that's a pretty big deal. Because even if the Taliban were to escalate attacks on Afghan troops, on Afghan civilians, heck, even Americans or allies. Both NATO and the U.S. have said, we will respond in kind with violence. Like, if you try to kill us, we will try to kill you. But other than that, like, we are leaving by September 11th, and there will be no U.S. troops in Afghanistan whatsoever. Any counterterrorism forces will move to nearby bases, and they're ha- currently having those deals. So I know that was a long explanation, but all this to say is they're not really giving themselves any wiggle room. Like, we are out. We are out by September 11th. There won't be any U.S. forces, contractors, anything, it looks like, in Afghanistan within a few months.
6: When you think and, and talk about the consequences of this, what what seems to be at this point an inevitable U.S. withdrawal, seems to be the key thing here. Because, again, we were supposed to be gone in May, and that's not going to happen now. So it's possible there's another pushback. But as Alex said, it seems unlikely at this point. If you look at a map of what's happening in Afghanistan right now, where the Taliban controls territory, where the government controls territory, and which, as is often the case in an insurgency, which places are contested with both sides having a presence, there's a map by the Long War Journal that that shows this stuff. And it is really striking to look at because – Huge chunks of the country, the vast majority of different areas, are either controlled by the Taliban or more likely contested. Now, the population centers, including Kabul, tend to be more under government control. But a huge chunk of the country is still not firmly in the government of Afghanistan's hands. And that's the case even when the United States is still here. So one of the, the lines that you hear from critics of the withdrawal plan is that this is the equivalent of the United States leaving Vietnam and the evacuation of Saigon and the inevitable fall of the South Vietnamese regime because absent U.S. support, it just can't sustain itself militarily against the Taliban. I don't know if it's that obvious in this case, but there is a decent chance that the Taliban simply overruns. Afghanistan and, and reinstalls itself as the new governing force as it was before 9/11.
8: Yeah, if you look at those maps that that you're talking about over the past 20 years, but especially in the past several years, they have been very steadily grabbing more and more territory and getting closer and closer to Kabul and other population centers. Like they are on the outskirts of major cities, they are right there. And again, like you said, that's with U.S. troops there on the ground. When all of that is gone and you just have the Afghan security forces and the Afghan military there, the question is whether they will actually in any way have the both the ability, the technical ability and the firepower to actually be able to hold off the Taliban. So I think there is a very good chance that the Taliban could overrun the country. And that would spell disaster for millions of people living in Afghanistan. If you look at what Taliban rule was like in the 90s when they ruled the country, it was basically like a prison for women. Women were, you know, forced to stay in their homes. They couldn't leave without a male escort. They had to be fully covered except for their eyes. They weren't allowed to work. Girls weren't allowed to go to school. There were routine floggings and stonings of women for adultery all sorts of horrific things, all sorts of other really awful things that I won't get into. But basically, it was just a a living nightmare for women and for many other people. LGBTQ people don't fare particularly well under Taliban rule. Many minority groups, ethnic minorities are not particularly protected. But you don't really have to even go back to that era. The Taliban, like we just said, controls a lot of territory. And in the places where they currently rule— It's actually a mixed bag. You have some areas where they're a little bit more lax, but you have some areas where it is very strict, their fundamentalist version of Islamist rule. And so the idea that after 20 years, and and yes, there have been 20 really long war-torn years, but they have also been 20 years in which women have had the right to go to work have had the right to leave their homes, been able to participate in government and in even the negotiations with the Taliban. There are really striking images of, you know, women speaking at these kind of government Taliban negotiations and the Taliban just sitting there. I I never thought I would even see something like that, that they would even be in the same room as women negotiating. So for Afghan women in particular, facing that prospect is really terrifying, that every gain that they've made in 20 years could essentially be wiped out And that is incredibly terrifying. And there are, you know, a lot of really good pieces right now that are out there with Afghan women saying, hey, please don't forget about us. We're still here. But on the other hand, that rationale of we want to make sure that we we protect women's rights is also part of why the U.S. has been in the country for 20 years, which is, you know, also a difficult conversation to have is whether that is a reason for continued military, I don't know if you still want to call it occupation, but continued war for decades. Is that or is that not worth fighting a war over? We are now
0: squarely in nice weather season, which means it's time to start talking about being active with the right socks, obviously. Now, I've been wearing Bombas for years and they just sent me a new set of their performance socks, to which... I must doff my hat. Bomb's Performance Socks are stitched with special moisture-wicking yarn and temperature-regulating vents that allow cool air to flow in and prevent overheating, which I have been loving. Plus, they have a whole bunch of other features like cushion in all the right places, arch support, and what they unironically refer to as stay-up technology, which sounds like overkill, but as someone who finds it, almost irrationally irritating when my socks get sucked down into my shoes. I am all in on whatever level of technology it takes to stop that. And of course, they come in a bunch of styles and specific design features, so find the one that's best for you all while knowing that for every pair of Bombas performance socks you buy, they donate a pair to someone in need, which is my favorite part. So far, they've donated over 45 million pairs. So go to Bombas.com/best today and get 20% off your first order. That's B-O-M-B-A-S.com/best for 20% off. Bombas.com/best.
9: And like you said, October 2018, Jamal Khashoggi is, is butchered by Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has admitted for the first time the murder of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi was premeditated. Khashoggi, a fierce critic of the kingdom's leadership. Which had an effect on Congress's willingness to speak out on the Yemen war. Is that right? Absolutely. And Khashoggi, in, in
5: many ways, is a martyr for his own cause. He was a journalist mm-hmm. who was assassinated because he's writing about Yemen. That's why the Saudis take his life. And it's a, it's mm-hmm. one of the unfortunate realities of mainstream coverage of Khashoggi's murder that people didn't say the second sentence, the reason why he was assassinated. Right. But that right. opens up then a condemnation of, of the Saudis and changes the sentiment in Congress, at least about the U.S.-Saudi relationship if not about fully about the Yemen war.
9: So then in the spring of 2019, so now Democrats have taken over Congress, what was it that brought Democratic leadership around to the idea that this was worth doing?
5: I think it was a cumulative process. In those two years, we, we kept reintroducing those resolutions with more and more sponsors. They kept hearing from the groups. There were certain horrific events, I mean, bombings that were reported where women and children literally died, reports about starvation. And then the Khashoggi murder, though, was Mm -hmm. the turning point. I think after that, the leadership said, we have to do something. Even before Pelosi became Speaker, she had called me and said, we're going to get this moving soon after, I assume, the Speakership.
9: And the reason we're talking about this, of course, is that President Biden has come out and said that the U.S. will no longer assist with offensive operations in the war on Yemen. But then I want to read to you what Biden says after that. He says, at the same time, Saudi Arabia faces missile attacks, UAV strikes, and other threats from Iranian-supplied forces in multiple countries. We're going to continue to support and help Saudi Arabia defend its sovereignty and its territorial integrity and its people. What do you think of that carve-out given that basically since World War II, any country that attacked another country has said that it's doing so in its own defense.
5: Well, the Saudis have, of course, used the defense to prosecute the war in Yemen. I mean, they have basically launched missiles into residential sites in Yemen to target the Houthis, claiming that they were doing that in a defensive posture to prevent an attack on Saudi Arabia. So their explanation is not going to fly. And the Congress needs to make sure that it's actually a defensive and not offensive strikes into Yemen. And we have to be vigilant to make sure that the Saudis aren't able to exploit that definition.
9: So do you think that means that another war powers resolution is necessary to put Congress on record that the U.S. shouldn't be involved in this war in any way? So Senator Sanders and I, in
5: fact, we had a phone call the day President Biden announced to discuss reintroducing the War Powers Resolution. And they knew that the administration was well aware that we were planning to reintroduce the War Powers Resolution. And then we got these very positive statements. The statement on uh, the Houthis not being uh, designated as terrorist Mm -hmm. organization. The reason that matters is you basically had no commercial activity into Yemen with that designation, and that was aggravating the famine. We had this statement that the U.S. was not going to support in any way, including intelligence, any offensive strikes. So what we said is, let's hold off. There's been a very positive movement, but let's be vigilant. I mean, if we start to see that the Saudis are continuing to take offensive actions in Yemen and that we're in any way involved in them, then a War Powers resolution becomes necessary. So we're going to be vigilant and see how things uh, develop.
9: What is the path to actually ending this war, like not just U.S. involvement in it, but the war itself.
5: Right. It's more pressure on the Saudis. I mean, Griffiths is doing a phenomenal job as a U.N. envoy, and he has not had a partner with the United States in putting pressure on the Saudis to stop the bombing, to come to an agreement, to make sure that they lift the blockade that allows food and medicine into Yemen. So the critical thing is that the Saudis really need to Understand that it's not just the U.S. isn't going to be complicit in furthering the war. The United States actually is going to be on the side of putting pressure to end the war. And I think if the Saudis feel that pressure sufficiently, Griffiths, who is, in my view, close to the finish line, can have the leverage to end the war.
9: Biden, rather remarkably during a debate, during a presidential debate, referred to Saudi Arabia as a pariah.
10: I would make it very clear. We were not going to, in fact, sell more weapons to them. We were going to, in fact, make them pay the price and make them, in fact, the pariah that they are. There's very little social redeeming value of the in the present uh, government in Saudi Arabia.
9: Is this the number one thing that Biden wants of Saudi Arabia to, for them to end this war in order to repair the relationship uh, was so fractured over the last four years?
5: It seems to me it is. I mean, I from my conversations with the Biden administration and from the fact that this is the first foreign policy mm-hmm. speech, really, of President Biden. It's the first thing he says. I think it shows the level of priority that people put on it. I think you also have individuals in the administration who were part of the Obama administration who genuinely regret what has happened and view it as part of their legacy and a matter of their conscience to fix the situation. I think when they greenlighted in some ways the Saudi offensive, they didn't think it would lead to the absolute disaster that it has. So that leads me to believe that it is a very high priority. The appointment of a special envoy to Yemen suggests that, and I think Bob Malley in Iran suggests that the administration is going to prioritize ending the war.
1: to a briefing that Mark Locock, the Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs, gave on Tuesday to the UN Security Council. He called out the oil-rich Gulf states for turning away mm. from the situation in Yemen.
0: Several donors, including the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates and Kuwait, who have a particular responsibility which they've discharged in recent years, have so far given nothing to this year's UN plan. It is particularly reprehensible to promise money, which gives people hope that they may, hope that help may be on the way, and then to dash those hopes by simply failing to fulfill the promise. More than nine million people have been affected by deepening cuts to aid programs, including food, water, and healthcare, continuing to hold back money, from the humanitarian response now will be a death sentence for many families.
1: That's the UN Under Secretary General Mark Lok. Nema Obagir. If you can talk about—it's even wrong to say the Gulf states have turned away from Yemen. They have not turned away from Yemen. They are constantly bombing Yemen. In fact, on Tuesday, President Trump stood with the foreign minister of the United Arab Emirates. uh, And, of course, we know Saudi Arabia leads the bombing—bombs provided by the United States. And part of the deal— didn't actually have to do with the Palestinians that was signed off on at the White House. It had to do with the United States selling the UAE F-35 fighter bombers. Can you talk about the significance of, once again, these weapons deals
11: to hunger and the devastation of Yemen? It sends a message, doesn't it? It sends a message, not just— in Yemen, but it sends a message around the world that you can do what you want to do as long as you as long as you sign up for our key concerns. And a a, a number of U.S. diplomats have described to me conversations that they've had with the UAE and with Saudi Arabia. And essentially, the the subtext of the conversation was we have signed, the UAE has signed a peace deal with Israel. And we know that this is a key priority for the Trump administration. What more do you want? from us. What we know about Yemen is that Yemen, it was a national security risk for the United States. It, it was home to the most effective franchise of al-Qaeda, al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, who who at one point got very far in a plot to put a, a bomb on a plane and send it to the United States. That was always given as the excuse for the reason why the United States need to continue to be engaged in Yemen. What has happened with allowing key U.S. allies like the UAE and Saudi Arabia to do what they have done in Yemen is that this hunger and this conflict has allowed not just al-Qaeda, but ISIS to become resurgent in Yemen again. Just this last week, there were a number of pretty effective ISIS and al-Qaeda attacks. The U.S. is is measurably less safe because of what, his, what their allies have done in Yemen. But One of the things that that is really interesting that so many of us that are covering foreign affairs are looking at really closely is that the ICC, the International Criminal Court, has now said that the chief prosecutor, Fatou Bansouda, can begin to look into U.S. war crimes in Afghanistan. And that is precedent-setting, because given what the IG report, the unredacted version, shows about the U.S.'s disregard for civilian casualties perpetrated by Their allies with their bombs. There is a real conversation that is beginning about whether the U.S. is opening itself up for further cases of war crime prosecution on Yemen. And it's a pretty credible case that is being discussed. And yet, any time that you bring this formally and on record to the State Department or to Trump administration officials, they say this is about American manufacturers, about American workers being able to make money out of American bombs being dropped in Yemen. And what we have seen with the engagement that we have found not just for this piece, but also for the previous investigations that we've done is actually, and actually I take heart from this, is that so many of our audience, whether it's in America or around the world, don't believe that. They don't believe that, that money should be made over the deaths of innocent civilians halfway around the world in a country that was already a humanitarian disaster, even before this ill-thought-through intervention.
0: I've been suggesting the new show, "Unfucking the Republic, recently. You may have heard me talk about it. I usually joke about how cursing on a politics show is both uncouth and also exactly what our current politics calls for. But today, I want to take a turn for the uncharacteristically earnest... For context, a couple of months ago, we were thinking about making an episode about the split on the left being led by a handful of prominent progressives who are so far left that they have come to hate AOC for not being left enough. And we ultimately decided against doing the topic, mostly because I was pretty sure it would be too hard to find enough thoughtful commentary on the subject. There's a fair amount of unthoughtful commentary but let's be honest a big part of it was just the idea of wading into those murky waters and dealing with the inevitable backlash didn't sound like any kind of fun to me so it would be a hard episode to make and nearly everyone would get mad from one angle or another and so i just ultimately decided it wasn't worth it so my uncharacteristic earnestness comes into play when I tell you that Unfucking the Republic made exactly that kind of episode last month, and I really recommend it. I'm really proud of them for making it. It gives a bit of the big picture, it gives a bit of the details, it doesn't pull punches, it calls out everyone who needs to be called out, all while maintaining nuance and a lighthearted comedic touch. The episode is titled April 2021 Quickie, aoc and the lying men hydra and it was published on april 16th so do check that out and find everything that on the republic is producing wherever you get your podcasts by searching for unftr or by clicking through on the link in our show notes
12: What is discouraging is that ISIS wouldn't even be in existence if we hadn't invaded Iraq in in the first place. And we were out of Iraq, mostly, when ISIS started taking territory. And we had to go back in using airstrikes and support for the Iraqi military, for which we had already poured billions of dollars in training over the years they still couldn't handle their own security. They couldn't take back that territory that ISIS had been gobbling up all the way through 2014 and beyond. So we're still there contesting or protecting or uh, securing parts of Iraq that their own military should be able to handle. So there that's the answer to that question. Why are we still there? Because we feel that The the Iraqi military that we had been training for the last almost 17 years can't handle their own security. But the problem is, the longer we stay there, the more we become targets for these attacks by Iranian-backed militias. Ironically, some of those same Iranian-backed militias had helped us get rid of ISIS, (laughs) during the sort of second wave that we were there in after 2014. So I, it's really a, what they call an S show. And I, I don't know how to answer that uh, more clearly than to say, what's in it for us at this point? How is having, I don't even know how many, several thousand troops in Iraq remaining going, Is it how is it protecting U.S. interests? Why is it in our interest to remain there? Because to me, it seems like you said, Dan, we're just sitting ducks. As for Congress, I think it's proven it's been proven in the past that presidents can get away with these uh, targeted bombings, whether it be in Syria or Iraq or assassinating Qasem Soleimani and Congress will basically be, do nothing. They'll make a big show of putting out statements and demanding that the president come and brief them after the fact, but until they actually take action as a body and not just the house and not just the senate, but as a body and really push presidents whether they're Democrats or Republicans, are going to think they can get away with this.
13: Yeah, it's almost more of a tick than a war at this point, right? I mean, why are we continuing to bomb these militias? Because that's what we've always done. We pass a budget and we have the State of the Union address and we also kill Shiites in Iraq and Syria. It's just and this supposed break from the Trump administration, right, that Joe Biden was going to implement. Well, at the beginning of his administration, Biden was shooting down Iranian drones in Syria Biden was accidentally killing Syrian soldiers in Syria Biden later in his administration or I'm sorry I'm Trump later in his administration was targeting some of these same these same Shiite militias that were now that were now targeting. Trump assassinated Soleimani, which caused a lot of these flare ups with the Shiites in Iraq to start taking place. I was saying Biden earlier, by the way. I meant Trump. Sorry about that. There really is no break. It's just a continuing of this kind of low grade, low burn war that we've been engaged in for so long. And to your point, Cal ultimately, if you're going to win something like this, and I don't even know what victory would look like at this point, but if you're going to win something like this, you need a patron on the ground, right? Unless you're prepared to invade and occupy Iraq and Syria again, and I would assume Iran too, uh, you need somebody on the ground who you can work with. And the question is, who is powerful enough to do that right now? We know the armed forces in Iraq aren't going to be able to stand up. They haven't in the past. They got steamrolled by ISIS. They've been steamrolled by the Shiite militias. And the government, I appreciate the Iraqi government declaring Khatib Hezbollah, the the group that bombed the Erbil Airport and and who Biden later bombed, to be an enemy. And that's good, certainly. But other Shiite militias are deeply intertwined with the Iraqi state. In fact, they're a function of the Iraqi state. They're integrated into the economy. They they command entire sectors. They use their muscle to to extract bribes and, and to perpetrate corruption this is what Iraq looks like right now. This is what we've turned it into. And we've been fighting Hattab Hezbollah since the Iraq war itself, back when we were also fighting the the Mahdi army, the, these groups just keep blending into one another. And what is our plan for victory here? Instead of just lobbing a bomb here and there, which is what's become really the, the modus operandi, what do we plan to do to stop this? And if nothing else, if there's nothing that can be done, which there isn't, why don't we Get out already! Like, what interest do we still have in doing any of this? It just—it's discouraging. I understand the impetus by the Biden administration to say, "Okay, we were attacked; therefore, we need to attack back." Our credibility is on the line. It's a tit for tat. There is a logic there. I don't deny it. But you have to look at it in the bigger picture, and the bigger picture shows that we are just. There's nothing that can be done. This is wholly futile.
14: That's right. And, and if we're looking at the bigger picture, we need to remember that this is taking place against the backdrop of a, a very slow and, it seems to me, ineffective approach towards diplomacy with Iran. Uh, and one of Biden's uh, catchphrases now is to say, diplomacy is back, whenever he gives a foreign policy speech. And yet the, the actual diplomacy seems to be quite elusive. Uh, and of course, it's possible that you can have military action and diplomacy working in tandem, they're, they're not mutually exclusive necessarily, but it is troubling given the very slow pace that the U.S. is taking on the nuclear deal that Biden chooses uh, to strike at an Iranian-backed group, e- even if it may be justified, as a way of sending a message uh, to Iran, right? And so after the airstrike, they then also sent a message by way of Switzerland to say, okay, and now we want everything to, to calm down and stop. Well, if you want everything to calm down and stop, you don't go and blow up someone else's base. You you exercise some restraint. And I think there is a there is a warped assumption that a lot of people in foreign policy circles have that if you don't strike back against every provocation, that is weakness. When in fact, we're the the far more powerful uh, state, we're the far more powerful force uh, in the region. We don't have to respond to every provocation. We don't have to uh, engage in, in these sort of overkill responses. And and what we see from these responses is that they don't actually deter anything. They don't uh, stop these attacks from happening in the future. If that had been the case, this most recent one would never have happened. We've been, quote-unquote, restoring deterrence in Iraq now for several years. And we have to look at the the real cause for these hostilities, and that's the in part the the ongoing military presence in Iraq that isn't wanted, and our sanctions policy towards Iran, which Biden has so far done nothing to lessen. Uh, And as long as you have those two things, uh, you're going to have uh, pushback from Iranian-backed groups in Iraq. And so if you really wanted to resolve the issue permanently, you would Uh, actually try to to deal with the Iranians and and meet them halfway on uh, the question of re-entering the nuclear deal. Uh, And unfortunately, what we've seen over the last month is a Biden administration that doesn't want – it's so desperate not to be perceived as weak that it refuses to follow through on its own promises. And of course, that just makes them look ridiculous.
15: In February of this year, newly minted President Joe Biden announced the end of the war in Yemen, which we'll talk to our guest about and get to in more detail later. And when that announcement was made, there were two huge qualifiers in the announcements that were big red flags that we found fascinating that no one was really mentioning, which is that Tony Blinken, when he made the announcement, said they were still going to support defensive operations and that they were going to limit or curb arms sales or pause arms sales and then with the fine print, they said they were going to continue the arms sales anyway. Yeah. And what was interesting about it at the time is when we talked about this offline is just how much the media uniformly, BBC, New York Times, even Democracy Now! and supposed progressive outlets trumpeted the headline that Biden ends the war in Yemen or U.S. involvement in the war in Yemen. Mm-hmm. And now that two months have gone by and the war has actually gotten worse in many ways, again, as we'll cover with our guest. There was no sense of follow-up of how exactly did we limit our participation in the war Mm -hmm. in Yemen? What is the U.S. doing to actually end the war, if anything at all? And the predictable reality that these qualifiers that were thrown in by Secretary Blinken were there for a very specific reason, which was to not really end the war. And this got us talking about how many times in our lives there has been endings of wars announced that were later than – Actually, JK, or not really, or the kind of hype didn't really live up to what was promised. This, And then we realized in our research and discussing this that it was actually quite common. Yeah, this actually happens all the time. U.S. presidents have a history of announcing the end of wars or pronouncing the intent to end a war without actually doing so at all. And then that raises the question of, well, who exactly are these announcements for? And whether or not, God forbid, the media ought to be skeptical of announcements of intention or announcements of a vague process rather than the substantive evidence that said war has actually ended or troops have actually been withdrawn. What are the actions that provide the proof that wars are over
16: or military occupations have ceased? I think a perfect example to start with is going into how many times we heard about Obama ending The war in Afghanistan, pulling out of U.S. occupation troops there and how often the media lapped it up and then fed it back to all of us as yet another example of Obama sticking to his word. Remember what we heard on the campaign trail where he was going to bring the troops home and that there were dumb wars and he's not going to do stupid things. You know what? After more than a decade in Afghanistan, Obama's going to do it. He's going to end another war. War. So during his presidency, Obama promised multiple times to end the war in Afghanistan. In both 2012 and 2013, he claimed that war would be over by the end of 2014. And lo and behold, in December of 2014, the United States and NATO formally ended the longest war in U.S. history, the occupation of Af- Afghanistan, with a flag lowering ceremony in Kabul, Afghanistan. Now, media outlets, of course, were quick to parrot this message. The war has been ended. For example, CBS News had a headline that ran on December 8th, 2014, saying, U.S., NATO officially end Afghan combat mission. The article would go on to state, quote, The U.S. and NATO have ceremonially ended their combat mission in Afghanistan 13 years after the September 11 terror attacks sparked their invasion of the country to topple the Taliban-led government. NATO's International Security Assistance Force Joint Command, which was in charge of combat missions, lowered its flag Monday, formally ending its deployment, end quote. However, even as these articles ran, there were signs that the war in Afghanistan was not in fact ending. Like just the previous month, November of 2014, Obama had signed a secret order greenlighting A more expansive military operation in that country, as the New York Times reported, saying this quote, Mr. Obama's order allows American forces to carry out missions against the Taliban and other militant groups threatening American troops or the Afghan government, a broader mission than the president described to the public earlier this year, according to several administration, military, and congressional officials with knowledge of the decision. The new authorization also allows American jets, bombers, and drones to support Afghan troops on combat missions, end quote.
15: Meanwhile, Obama was already going back on the promised troop withdrawals right around the time of the flag-lowering ceremony. Then Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel said that there would be a thousand more troops kept in Afghanistan in 2015 that had previously been promised by Obama. And then there was the U.S.-Afghanistan bilateral security agreement signed in September 2014 that secured another decade of U.S troop presence meddling training arming and funding of the Afghan military and not only had Obama prolonged the war in Afghanistan which was already 13 years old in 2015 a year and a half after the end of the war Obama stated that he would not withdraw his troops in Afghanistan because quote Afghan forces are still not as strong as they need to be Obama then announced that the U.S would keep thousands of troops in Afghanistan through the end of his term in 2017. At the time, Obama administration officials insisted that he, in fact, had not ended the war, <laughs> that he had not broken his right. promise by the ironically named Josh Ernest, Obama's press secretary, said, quote, over the last seven years, we've made a lot of important progress, unquote. Homeland Security Advisor Lisa Monaco said that the open-ended mission would be to prevent a safe haven for terrorist groups and, quote, unquote, enduring security partnerships with authorities in Kabul, unquote. So Obama, on two separate occasions, in 2012 and 2013, I think most notably during the 2012 election with Romney, had promised that within two years, the war would be over. It's now 2021 mm-hmm. and US troop levels in Afghanistan are relatively stable. They're still there in Afghanistan and there's no indication that they're going to not be there for some time. But
16: they lowered a flag at him. They had a ceremony and they took a flag down.
15: Right, and so I felt like I was going crazy because I would do, like, didn't Obama end the war? Another thing that Obama did is he promised to end the war in Iraq, which formerly he did. American troops for the most part did leave Iraq in twenty eleven, but it's important to note that it was reported partly at the time that Liam Panetta and Obama wanted to keep thousands of American troops in Iraq, but because of the WikiLeaks cables and the collateral murder video, which showed the mowing down of Iraqi citizens by American troops, had caused such an outrage that in many ways Chelsea Manning was responsible for ending the Iraq war because the WikiLeaks collateral murder video is what caused so much outrage in Iraq that based, that made it completely politically untenable for the Iraqi Congress to give the Americans, the immunity clause, they demanded to stay, which is to say American troops cannot be prosecuted by Iraqi courts. Which is what the Obama administration wanted to maintain. So again, they even tried to fake in the war in Iraq, but because of WikiLeaks' cables that Chelsea Manning had blown the whistle on, Mm -hmm. it became politically impossible for them to do that. So this that's an example of when the U.S. technically did pull out for three years before they came back in August of 2014 to ostensibly fight ISIS and other bad guys in West Iraq and East Syria that they had actually – Wanted to stay. So that was an attempted fake ending. But due to a status of forces agreement that demanded that
16: all U.S. troops withdraw from Iraqi territory no later than December 31st, 2000.
15: 11, that was not altered by the Iraqi government. Otherwise, the Obama administration would have had to effectively reinvade Iraq. And so that was a failed fake attempt. So that was a war we actually did briefly in for about two and a briefly. Briefly. two and a half years. There were still
16: plenty of military advisors and contractors right. in the country and the largest quote unquote foreign embassy, which is really just a military base on the planet. But hey, it was ended in a different way than, say, Afghanistan.
15: Another place we see emerge the kind of fake ending the war is the supposed Biden withdrawal or desire to withdraw from the Afghanistan war, something that the last two presidents had promised that never came to be over a span of three terms over the span of 12 years. So what they do now with Biden, which you see also with the, quote-unquote, border crisis, quote-unquote, is that what was now a deliberate act by the most powerful person in the world, which is ethnic cleansing policy at the border by way of parallel – which is to say the Afghanistan war is something they can control. Now, mysterious forces are thrust upon Biden, and he has, he has no real agency <laughs> over the process. We're now back to the kind of, woe is me, quagmire. The situation is the problem, not necessarily the decisions made by the person at top. And you see this framing now with matching with Biden's campaign rhetoric, because he campaigned to end the war in Afghanistan quite explicitly. And now, mysterious outside forces make the US having to stay in Afghanistan typically There's two excuses that are used. They need to fight for women's rights. Everyone knows that NATO and the U.S. are women's rights organizations with guns. Or if they leave, they'll cede to the evil Russians and Chinese. So you see this kind of
16: dilemma framing of the Biden pending decision about what to do with Afghanistan. You see this in the New York Times on February 16th, 2021, an article headlined, Stay or Go, Biden long a critic of Afghan deployments, faces a deadline. And the article says this, quote, Mr. Biden, one senior aide noted, started his long career in the Senate just before the United States evacuated its personnel from Saigon, the capital of South Vietnam. The image of helicopters plucking Americans and a few Vietnamese from a roof was a searing symbol of a failed strategy. Mr. Biden is highly aware of the risks of something similar transpiring in Kabul the Afghan capital, if all Western troops leave, and he has privately described the possibility as haunting, aides say. But the president also questions whether the small remaining contingent of Americans can accomplish anything after 20 years in which almost 800,000 U.S. troops have deployed, or whether it will ever be possible to bring them home. So again, you have this framing where it's not about all the people that US troops have killed, or a country that was destroyed, or people living in a country having control over their own destiny, self-determination, none of that. It's all, let's not repeat the Vietnam mistake where American might was defeated and we were humiliated and we fled.
0: We've just heard clips today starting with Amy Goodman on breaking the sound barrier, examining the legacy of the occupation of Afghanistan. Worldly discussed the seemingly unconditional exit from Afghanistan now promised and the prospect of the Taliban taking over. Deconstructed looked at the war in Yemen and our relationship with Saudi Arabia. Democracy Now! in a clip from last year discussed the role that arms sales play in our foreign policy. Empire Has No Clothes discussed Biden's bombing of Syria and citations needed looked at the history of fake. Endings of Wars. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips, including another from Intercepted exploring how Joe Biden's legacy is intertwined with that of American imperialism, and a TED Talk from Samantha Nutt examined the role of arms sales in perpetuating war and violence around the world. For non-members, those bonus clips are linked in the show notes and are part of the transcript for today's episode, so you can still find them if you want to make the effort. But to hear that and all of our bonus content delivered Seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestofeleft.com/slash support, or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now we'll hear from you.
2: Hi Jay, this is Sasha. It's strange to have a serious conversation about the racial makeup of the Avengers. What escapist fantasy, in a sea of escapist fantasies, produced by the leviathans of capitalism would be a good expenditure of our time and resources. That said, I have wasted enormous amounts of my life's energies and can't help but chime in, perhaps doing so again, on my own moral repugnance of Marvel and Disney storytelling, as well as to offer a few comments on the show. I, too, was dismayed to see Avengers Endgame not give equal standing and self-sacrificing virtue to characters of color. The choice to have the billionaire white man Tony Stark essentially be the pivotal hero was maddening. But after my initial emotional hostility to it, I realized how capitalism was fueling racism not for the sake of racism, but simply profit. If Disney is going to choose one person to be more heroic than the other heroes, wouldn't it want that hero to appeal to those in our society who control the most market share, who have the most disposable income? It isn't the dot-com billionaires who Disney thinks will run out and buy their products, though it certainly helps sell their own vaulted glory and mythologized success, but all those people in the ranks of our technological revolution who have and can internalize the tech genius as the hero, as well as those countless numbers deluding themselves into thinking they might one day be a tech billionaire. And of course those lauding their closeness or connections to the tech giants. The broader point being that the sinisterness of racism doesn't always come from the clan mentality, given how little market capital people of color have in control. It's pretty obvious who corporations are going to market stories and myths for. It should also be obvious to you that choosing Tony Stark as the greatest protagonist in Endgame isn't just morally objectionable along color lines, also the mythologized view of work and production it delivers. Stark doesn't need people to help him write hundreds of thousands of lines of code or engineers to work out the minute details of very complicated machinery. His singular genius allows him to do it all himself. There is never any question about where his wealth comes from. It comes from him, not tens of thousands of employees working in his factories. Not from resources extracted in impoverished communities and destroying the environment. We do presently live in a nation where people of color are gaining market share and where their white allies are demanding their escapist fantasies be more woke. It's naive then to think that Disney didn't capitalize on marketing the Black Panther as its woke film. And it's sad that the left can't praise racial inclusion, while also being critical of objectionable parts of mythology of the film. How advanced is a society that chooses its leader in a cockfight? How is this acceptable, particularly in a film that is supposed to be speaking to African-Americans in particular? How mindless are people who go along with their new leader? Not because of his ideas, vision and moral character, but because he physically beat the hell out of the old leader. The rhetorical equal to this is Donald Trump. Yes, Disney perpetuates racist stereotypes for profit, as does much of the American media, but it is important to remember that even if the US had perfect racial equality, capitalism would still dictate that billions of people of color live in abject poverty. Just the portion of white people living in abject poverty would be equal to the portion of people of color living in abject poverty. It's in this vein that the left shouldn't just be critical of the systemic racism in Disney, but in the wealth and self-agency that has been stolen from the people, by corporations like Disney, and by everyone willing to perpetuate the idea that the work of one person can be infinitely more valuable than the work of another whether that is a CEO or a movie star. To counter the right-wing sentiment that slipped into this episode I will state, everyone is entitled to a decent life, regardless of employment status. It's the 21st century. Robots are doing more and more of the labor and the wealth of that should be public, not private, capital.
17: Hi, Jay, this is Pat from Chicago. I'm just calling in light of your recent episode to recommend a podcast to everyone that shows a textbook example of why, as usual, your analysis is spot on and Tucker Carlson cannot be more offensively or harmfully wrong. The podcast is called Somebody. It's about a young man who was killed in Chicago and it's narrated by his mom as she attempts to investigate the murder after the police's failure to do so including looking at police actions themselves and how they may or may not have contributed to her son's death i have not finished the the series and i recommend it to everybody but in episode three there's a perfect example of the kind of racist uh institutionally racist and harmful deeply harmful behavior that you identify in your recent rebroadcast and it's even so much more powerful because rather than a, a white woman on a in a school board meeting of being victimized, it's a, a black mother who's lost her son and it is directly at the hands of the police officers who should be investigating this. And it, it shows a textbook example of how they ignore context, historical and contemporary context, and turn around and blame her of and accuse her of being racist, which in turn just blatantly disproves Tucker Carlson's bad faith statement that being anti-racist is always lauded and appreciated in our country which of course we know is not true so it's about the 20 to 25 minute mark of episode three of the somebody podcast i recommend that you check it out jay and that any listeners check it out as well so that we can uh you know just get smarter about this analysis and help to uh dismantle this fucked up system that we're dealing with so thanks for the work and uh, let's keep it up
0: Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestoftheleft.com. In response to Pat, who we just heard from recommending the Somebody podcast, quick refresher because i'll take any opportunity to give a refresher on this the phenomenon that pat was referring to is called darvo deny attack and reverse victim and offender i explained it in great detail in the reposted episode that pat was referring to the one just one click back in the feed i think and I went and found the clip that Pat was referring to. It's super short, so let's just hear it. And let's see if you can parse out the denial, the attack, and the reversal of victim and offender.
4: I believe that not enough has been done to solve Courtney's murder.
0: What would, really? you, like, what would you
10: like done that I haven't done? I, I I
4: I personally would have went back and re-interviewed everybody to make sure that re-interviewed what interviewed the police. Oh absolutely. They assume police officers no, no, no. tell the truth. But I don't. No. Sorry, Sergeant Mitchell. Yes, ma'am. Based on the history that No, 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 no. Don't even uh, no. don't even start. No, okay, no, no, no. Why don't what you I'm talk saying, to me? What I'm saying to you is that this problem didn't just occur with Courtney Copeland's case, the breakdown from the community, and the you know I'm not here not to just talk happen. politics with you, I'm,
7: man. I'm, I'm just, here, to, I'm talk. Just I'm here you. to talk reality. You want, I'm,
4: I, I am you know? talking reality. No, you I'm
7: here to talk reality. Until you begin to, until you begin to, to,
4: to build these white men were having none of my experience as a black woman in Chicago. Your department has not saying this particular. I'm just saying CPD in general has a history that has been tainted and i know it's unfair absolutely
9: especially to these two gentlemen in this room absolutely it is i'm
4: saying i know it's unfair but that is just then why bring it up because it's the reality no it's not it's not with
9: these two guys because I know him personally and I've with him. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that they did anything to, to my son. I take offense to that. Why? I really do. Because you're painting with a broad brush, ma'am.
4: It's not a broad you're brush writing, when it's everyday paint, reality for black and brown guys, people in Chicago. You're painting with a broad brush? Do you, I'm you sorry. understand? Right. Okay, no. do no. you? Okay, fine. You know, fine. fine. Sergeant Whatever. Mitchell. I'm not...
9: You know what, ma'am? Do you understand that that's a reality
4: able, uh, with black and brown people in Chicago or not? I, not? And I'm telling you, not with us. I wanted them I'm to understand that, 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 this that this wasn't here. only I'm my perspective.
9: Right now, and if, if I haven't been clear on this, uh, I apologize. Our goal, our stated goal here, is to find, arrest, charge, and convict the offenders who did this to God you son. Willing. That's our stated goal. Okay. No variance. No nothing. No politics. No bullshit. No nothing.
10: Okay? And I'll tell you something else. Regardless of what you may think of me because I'm white, I it doesn't. I, I it don't, no, 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 but I, I. I,
4: I, don't I want I, you to think that. I, 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 really, I really, I
10: don't. I really don't care because I've been a policeman long enough. Where there's some people that just I don't they, have a this problem. Is what, with this is This is what they have a problem with. I want to let you know. Number one. I don't have a problem with it. If that's the way you feel, that's the way you feel about me. Isn't that's fine. No, I just, I just, I I just want I I to let I you know. I want everybody I, no, to, no, no, to no, no, focus no. on this case. But I want to let fund fund it still isn't, you know. You, you could spit on the floor when you see me. It's still not going to affect me from working from, from working. I'm on doing it. your job. And, and if, 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 whether we never talk again or, or we become good, it doesn't matter one way or another to me. If, if something good comes, that I, I'm able to to pick up and run with, I'm gonna I'm gonna run with it with, with your son's murder. And whether you you thank me or tell me to get fucked at the end, of all of this it doesn't matter. It doesn't oh, matter. No, I'm
4: definitely gonna thank you because that's my goal. Yeah, well, I no, want to know
10: why my 22 year old well, son was murdered. Well, so do I. Yeah, so yeah. do I. But no apparent reason. So do I. But it, it, as far as this whole black, brown, green
0: shit,
4: no, it doesn't matter. I'm saying, I so. said you can't discount the history of what no. happened.
0: My favorite part in there is, is first of all, overall, how nice she's being to them, how much she's concerned about their feelings and assuring them about the unfairness of the situation. But what's clear that's not getting through to them is what is unfair about it. They think it's unfair of her to bring it up. And she clearly means that it is unfair that the system works the way it does And that because so many police officers have proven themselves to be untrustworthy, that it taints the rest of them. That's unfair to everyone on every side of that equation. It's unfair for people to have to live in a community where they can't trust the police. And it's unfair for upstanding, honest police officers to be untrusted because they have been tainted. That's what's unfair, And their only response, the only thing they can think to say is, well, then why are you bringing it up? They just think it's unfair of her to bring it up. Unbelievable. And uh, yes, absolutely a textbook case of trying to make her feel bad that she's attacking them, actually. And them threatening to get up to leave in the middle of it because they can't handle it is about the least surprising reaction I can think of. So thanks to Pat for making that recommendation. I haven't heard much more of the show than what I just played for you, so you can act based on his recommendation or not. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202 3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Dan, and Ken, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic design, webmaster. And occasional bonus show co hosting. And thanks, of course, to those of you who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.comslash support, as that is absolutely how the program survives. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly. Thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestofleft.com.